listening to a sermon from Hebron Baptist Church, a church in the northern Kentucky Cincinnati area that's committed to making disciples who make disciples. We want our love for God to be evident in our lives and for the Word of God to bear fruit as we go on mission across the street and around the globe. We hope after hearing this message, you'll connect with us on our website at hebronbaptist.org and visit our campus, not far from I-275 in Hebron, some Sunday morning. And now, here's a message from God's perfect, life-changing Word. Amen. Do you know that... The preaching of the word is the answer to the prayer that we just sang. Christ has come and the Advent season is made famous and serves the purpose of looking forward to the second coming of Christ. But Christ is in the world today and the the number one place we see it is in the preaching of God's word. Not because it's me, like I'm some great preacher, Not because of Pastor Sean when he preaches, but because of the Word of God and the Spirit that comes with His Word. Are you glad that we have God's Spirit to understand His Word? Would you say amen? Are you glad for the unity that the Word causes when it is read and spoken and preached? Are you glad? Amen. We're beginning a series together um, for Christmas, and we're calling it Gift Exchange. I do want to share that the irony is not lost on me and is not lost on Pastor Sean as he preaches um, through this series. Um, I was thinking about when, have you ever gone to a Christmas party and you're likely to go to a host of them over the next few weeks uh, in which there is a gift exchange? So everybody's supposed to bring a gift and sometimes you do the whole white elephant thing, right? And you show up with a a toilet paper dispenser or something silly. Um, and, and, And... have you ever been to one of those parties and you brought something uh, and maybe you thought it was a white elephant party and it wasn't? Good, I'm glad that hadn't happened to anybody else but me. Or, or have you ever come to a party and you realize that the gift that you brought was just grossly inappropriate? Maybe you spent way too much money on it. Or more likely the case, if you're anything like me, you spent way too little money on it. And you're embarrassed. You look around the room and everyone else has these nice gifts and that poor guy that picked your number has a toilet paper dispenser. It's embarrassing. Your gift, you, you want to have brought a gift that is comparable to the, all the other gifts that are brought to the party and yours looks silly. And you kind of like, well, the nice thing is your name isn't written on it. So you're like, oh, who brought that gift? Oh. The gift exchanges, the, the five that we're going to talk about through this series, they're a bit, a bit like that. Uh, you're going to see this every week as we look at the thing that we bring to the table, the thing that God brings to the table. It always makes us think that ours is that toilet paper dispenser and God's is that like $50 gift certificate of Chick-fil-A, right? That's what we're going to see every week as we looked at God's Word. But nonetheless, we call it a gift exchange, for one, because of the appropriateness of the Christmas season, but for two, the screaming irony of it. So uh, let's look together at the screaming irony of today, when we give our worry and God gives us His peace. So we're going to look together today in Matthew chapter 6, starting in verse 25, And reading through verse 34, I'm going to read it for us. 
Uh, if you've got a copy of God's Word, I'd encourage you to open it or turn it on um, to, to um, Matthew chapter 6, starting in verse 25. Let me read God's Word to us. It says, Therefore I tell you, don't worry about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Isn't life more than food and the body more than clothing? Consider the birds of the sky. They don't sow or reap or gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Aren't you worth more than they? Can any of you add one moment to his lifespan by worrying? And why do you worry about clothes? Observe how the wildflowers of the field grow. They don't labor or spin thread. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all his splendor was adorned like one of these. If that's how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and thrown into the first furnace tomorrow, won't he do much more for you, you of little faith? So don't worry, saying, what will we eat, or what will we drink, or what will we wear? For the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be provided for you. Therefore, don't worry about tomorrow, because tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day is enough trouble of its own. And this is the ending of the reading of God's word. So, as we look together at this text, there's a few things I want us to, to see or notice that just jumped out at me as I studied it uh, uh, with the help of the Holy Spirit. And the first thing I want us to see, if you're taking notes, this is point number one, it is that God's provision isn't a function of our worry. God's provision isn't a function of our worry. Now, if you were to walk home with one main point of this text, the main point of this text is don't worry. So if, if all you're looking for was the main point of the text, that's it, write it down later. But there's more. <laughs> Thank God, as we watched the other week, uh, Bob Newhart says, stop it. Thank God that he doesn't left us with quit worrying you. That would be a much shorter uh, Bible um, and much, much less helpful. But he gives us more than just stop it. He tells us why we shouldn't worry. Now, as, as we use that word worry, as the text uses that word worry, what it has in mind is the distraction that happens when you're pulled in conflicting directions. That's what worry means. You think about um, ropes and tension with one another, but not in a helpful way, but in a distracting way. It's pulling you left and right and forward and backward and not, not where God wants you to go. It says, don't worry, and the reason you shouldn't worry is it doesn't work. <laughs> worry doesn't do what we, whether we admit it or not, subconsciously think it should do. We think... The reason that things aren't working out for me right now, we don't want to admit it, but this is we all think this, myself included, if things aren't working the way we'd hope they'd work right now, we subconsciously think to ourselves, we're just not worried enough. But as soon as we say that out loud, we realize how absolutely ridiculous that is. It is ridiculous, but we still believe it. We, we think if we worry enough, it will solve all of our problems. How's that worked out for you so far? Because it's not worked out for me at all. And as a matter of fact, our, our text, the writer, uh, uh, Matthew, tells us that, um, in fact, Jesus tells us that 
And he knew that already. He knew it before we tried it. He knew that worry didn't work. Didn't. It says, who can add one single day to their life by worrying? How many problems have been solved in your life by worrying? The answer is zero. It's a distraction. And God wants our heart. That's what ultimately the, the, the Sermon on the Mount, of which this is a part, what Jesus is communicating to us is that God wants our heart. When he says, you've heard it said, do not murder, but I tell you, anyone who looks at a, at a person with hatred in his heart has committed murder. God is telling us that he's concerned about our heart. When God says, uh, do not commit adultery, and yet he says, if you have looked at a, another person of the opposite sex with lust in your heart, that you have committed adultery already, the point of the text is that God wants our heart, not just our obedience. And the point of Matthew 6 that we're reading now is that God wants our heart, and worry is a distraction from us giving God our heart. There's been a study, if you're, if you're not, um, if sort of the God, word of God isn't enough, just from a purely pragmatic perspective, there's been a study that looks into how many of our imagined calamities never materialize. In this study, subjects were asked to write down their worries over an extended period of time and then identify which of their imagined misfortunes did not actually happen. Lo and behold, it turns out that 85% of what subjects worried about never happened. 85%. That sounds like a made-up statistic. Usually when they're made up, they're 83 so you know that this isn't made up because it's 85 and it was on the internet. 85% of what subjects worried about never happened and with the 15% that did happen, 79% of subjects discovered either they could handle the difficulty better than expected or the difficulty taught them a lesson worth learning. This means that 97% of what you worry over is not much more than a fearful mind punishing you with exaggerations and misperceptions. So even the world is noticing this. It is incredibly ineffective to worry. It doesn't do any good. What we see from our text is that, obviously worry doesn't do us any good. It doesn't get us what we want. That what we worry about will happen or it won't happen. And it won't have anything to do with whether we worried about it or didn't worry about it. So worry does us no good. The number one distraction, I think, for us as, as people of God and worry, at least for me, uh, is, is the effect that it has on our spiritual discipline process. So for one, um, how many of you have ever sat down, perhaps in the morning or the evening or whenever a good time is for you to read your Bible, and you start to read and three or four words in, something pops into your head. Oh, I, I, I wonder what we should do for dinner tonight. Or, oh, uh, oh I, I forgot to, to email this person. Or, I forgot to send a text message back to this person. Oh, I forgot to pack my coat. And worry, the worries of this world, snatch out the word of God in front of us. The word's there. We can read it. But we just can't focus on it. Prayer does much of the same thing. You get started in your time of prayer with God and you're listing off the, the things that you want to pray for. And again, another worry. Something pops in your head. Oh, I wonder what will happen with this. I wonder what will happen with that. Um, I think that one of the big ones for most of us in this room, if we were honest with ourselves, is evangelism. How many of us are stopped from doing evangelism because we're worried about what the other person is going to say? Isn't it a great comfort to know that we're not held responsible for what the other person says? We're not held responsible for the soul of that other person? 
Their blood is not on our hands. When we share the gospel with them, we've done our job. Not that we should not uh, love them, not be concerned for them, not pray for them continually, but we don't have to worry about that. That's God's job. So worry distracts us from all sorts of different spiritual disciplines, and I think that's, that's what, what Jesus is getting at here in Matthew chapter 6. God is after our heart. So God's provision isn't a function of worry. That's our first discovery from our text. Our second discovery from our text is that God's provision isn't a function of our work. It's not a function of our worry. It has, our worry has no effect on it, and it's not a function of our work. If we look at the text in verse 28, um, we, see, we see Jesus tell us, and why do you worry about clothes? Observe how the wildflowers of the field grow. And listen to this. They don't labor or spin thread. Now that sounds ridiculous. Of course flowers don't labor or spin thread. Who thinks that flowers don't labor or spin thread? Who thinks that they do? Like nobody thinks that. Well, I, Jesus isn't just talking into the wind. He's got something he's trying to say. He's, he's saying it. <laughs> We're not trying. God is, Jesus isn't failing to say what he means to say. We're failing to hear it. We are inclined we, we live our lives in such a way that we think that the labor and the toil and the spinning is what produces God's provision in our life. And there is nowhere we are more tempted to believe that than in this country, where, by God's grace over the years, people have been able to do things here that they've not been able to do in any other place, where if they work really hard, they make a good living. For many of you, this has been your experience. And so we think to ourselves, if it worked in our job we worked our rear end off and we got paid and we got better jobs and better money and better houses and better cars. Our kids go to better schools. We think, because I worked so hard and because I got things, that it must be the case that because I worked hard, I got things. Well, our text tells us that's actually not true at all. You have things because God is good. You don't have things because you worked hard. It may look that way, but if you don't believe me, look at another person who is working hard and things aren't working out for him. If you look around in your life, you're going to see this because this exists all over the place. Now, I'm not saying, I'm not saying then don't work, obviously. <laughs> we'll talk about that more in a minute. But what I'm saying is that our work is not what causes God to provide for us. And that's what's demonstrated in our text. Uh, here's an illustration I wanted to share with you. So uh, if you've ever seen the movie Charlie and the Chocolate Factory or read the book, um, there's this character, this delightful character in it named Veruca Salt. Because she is, she's just a peach. Love her. So uh, I'm being sarcastic. If you've seen the movie, you know what I'm saying. She's a spoiled brat. And why is she a spoiled brat? She's a spoiled brat because her daddy gives her everything, right? And so when it's announced on the news that Willy Wonka is going to be giving out these golden tickets spread throughout the world... And whoever's lucky enough to open their, their Wonka bar and find this golden ticket gets a trip to the factory to see this mysterious secret factory. And so everyone else is just hoping whenever they open a Wonka bar that maybe they'll find that golden ticket. Well, he doesn't do that. He decides he's going to take luck into his own hands. And so he takes it, this guy who's very, very wealthy, takes his entire factory devoted to some other purpose I can't remember, and repurposes the whole factory as a chocolate bar opening factory. 
And so all of his employees are opening chocolate bars, and they're going through thousands upon thousands of chocolate bars because he thinks if he just floods the market, eventually one of them will have the golden ticket that his daughter Veruca has asked for. Now, uh, Veruca's father is not hoping that he'll get the golden ticket. He's decided he's going to work and make it happen because that's what's happened his entire life. Contrast that with our favorite character, Charlie, the main character, the hero of the story, right? What does Charlie do to get the golden ticket, which he does eventually acquire? He can only afford, well, he buys a chocolate bar, and there's no golden ticket, so all the hope's lost, because that's all he could afford to buy. He's out walking, and he finds the, the, I don't know if it's a silver dollar or whatever, in a sewer grate, he picks it up. Um, If you read the book, you actually find out that was rigged, that they were hoping that Charlie would go to the chocolate factory, but that doesn't, that kind of makes my illustration fall down, so we don't talk about that. But, so Charlie finds the, gold, the golden coin, and he goes, and apparently what, for whatever country, he, I'm not sure if he lives in America or, or, or the UK, because it's like the, the accents are all over the place. But anyway, um, he finds this coin that's enough to buy the chocolate bar. And he goes, he can only afford one. And he goes, he sets it on the counter, and he gets the chocolate bar, and there's this music that wells up, and he opens it up, and there's the golden ticket. How did Charlie get the golden ticket? He hoped. It wasn't that he worked. It wasn't that he, it wasn't like Veruca's dad who opened a factory just to open these chocolate bars. All he did was buy the one he could afford and hope. And he got the chocolate bar. Now, this isn't exactly what the story writer is trying to say, but if this happened in real life, again, God gave Veruca the, the golden ticket, just like God gave Charlie the golden ticket. Veruca worked, Veruca's daddy worked hard. Charlie didn't have to work at all. Either way, they both got a golden ticket. That's the way life is. God is going to give us what we need, and it's not a function of our worry, and it's not a function of working hard for it either. Because the things that we need most are not the things that we can earn. The things that we need most are not the things that we can earn. This, by the way, right here, is where the, is the seed of what we see in the prosperity gospel in our world today that's grown here but grown especially quickly in Africa. The idea that if we work hard enough and if we, if we pray hard enough and so we believe hard enough that God will bless. It's just a function of our faith which sounds spiritual but in that scenario is faith not just another work? If we believe strongly enough and God provides, isn't that just something that we did to earn God's favor? Do you see that in Scripture? Where we can earn God's favor by our faith? No, faith is a gift, Romans tells us. It's a gift from God. It's a gift from a loving Father who gives it to us, by the way, when we didn't ask for it. He gives us faith when we hated Him. The Bible tells us that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. It is a good gift of God. So, God's provision isn't a function of our worry. God's provision isn't isn't a function of our work. We see this, uh, the the greatest extent in the prosperity gospel, believing that if we believe enough that God will bless us. The instruction isn't, by the way, as I said earlier, it isn't just, it isn't don't work. It's not like stop working and God will provide for you. That's not how it works either, right? You be faithful with what God has given you and what you're doing and do it as unto the Lord and trust in him that he will provide what you need. 
Do not believe that what you do gets God's favor or God's provision, because that's what our text is telling us. Don't believe that. But work. Work hard, because you're working for the Lord, not for your stuff. That's a greater motivation. And believe. Believe that God will provide, because he will provide, whether we believe it or not. There's an interesting thing from our text. If you look back at it, in verse 30, if that's how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and thrown into the furnace tomorrow, won't he do much more for you? You of how much faith? Little faith. So God isn't providing for them because of their faith. God is providing for them in their little faith. That's not a, oh, little, just barely enough faith. <clears throat> That's a pejorative. In other words, that is an insult. You are not faithful. That's what Jesus is saying. You of little faith are the ones who don't believe. And God is providing for them, not because of their worry, and not because of their work. So, why then does God provide? And that's our last point. God's provision is not a function of our worry. It's not a function of our work. It is a function of our worth to him. As my friend Euphra would say, games changer. That is revolutionary, especially for an American audience, which it wasn't written for, but which it is incredibly appropriate for. The illustrations that Jesus used hinge on our value as compared to other things that God faithfully provides for. He says, don't worry because God provides for the birds. And how much more valuable are you than birds? He says, don't worry because God provides for the flowers. And how much more worth are you to God than the flowers? He does something incredibly, incredibly subtle, but powerful. He says, who does he compare the flowers to? He says, not even Solomon himself in all of his splendor was adorned like one of these flowers. And then he says, you are worth more than the flowers. Maybe you didn't pick up on this, so I'll say it again. The flowers are worth more, are more beautiful, are more adorned, are more provided for than Solomon in all of his splendor, who was the richest man who ever lived. God cares about the flower more than the rich man. And what does he care more about than the flower? You. So God's care for you is not a function of his provision for you. It doesn't work the other way around. It isn't that God loved Solomon more than any other person who ever walked the earth, and that's why God gave Solomon riches. No, 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 no. God gave Solomon riches because he was good, because God is a good giver. He is kind. He is loving. God provides for the flowers, not because the flowers are particularly impressive. In fact, he says, they're not going to last. They're going to get thrown into the furnace and burned. They're not going to be around. But you will. So you, in your eternal state, which, by the way, every person in this room is an eternal being. Every one of us will spend eternity in some place. 
we will spend eternity in heaven with God. And then once he, if, if we die before he comes back, when he comes back, we'll spend eternity with him and the new earth. We'll either spend eternity with God or we're going to spend eternity separated from God. All of us are eternal beings. And all of us, because of that eternality, God has singled us out for a particular kind of love that he is not showing to any other species he has ever created. He gave us his image. We are made image bearers. Despite our sinful nature, we still bear God's image. God loves us in that way more than any other being in all creation. So our provision, God's provision for us, is a function of our worth to him. Then we think to ourselves, oh, how, we automatically jump back to the first one. We worry, okay, oh goodness, how much are we worth to God? I hope we're worth a lot. Well, God answers us in that question. Both in our text, he tells us how we're worth and compared to other things, but then in Matthew, uh, later on in Matthew chapter 7, verse 9 through 11, he says, Who among you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? God is a better father than you because he's kind. But one more thing, in, in 1 John we just finished looking at, God demonstrated his love in this. this. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and gave his son to be the propitiation, the wrath-appeasing sacrifice for our sins. God loved us so much, John three sixteen, that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Think about who the son is. The son whose incarnation we celebrate in Christmas. Who is this? This is one of the Godhead. This is, a, this is a person of the Trinity who the Father has had infinite and eternal fellowship with since before the foundations of the earth, and it is God's favorite thing. God loves his son. It's not like, oh, I'll just throw Jesus away so I can get the church. No, that's not how that works. God loves his son, and he loves us so much that he gave his son. So it's actually the best news on the planet to know that in fact God's provision for us is a function of our worth to him because he's proven to us what our worth is to him. That is not a worth, by the way, that we can lose because we're reminded in our passage, oh, you of little faith. It wasn't our faith that caused God to put worth on us. It is his goodness which never changes. Our faith, it rises and it falls. We sang that earlier. When I fear my faith will fail, what? He will hold me fast. Don't worry because God loves you. And that sounds like a cheap phrase, but it is not a cheap phrase. It's a phrase that God designed to prove to you so that you can know, that you can know, that you can know that he loves you and that he will never let you go. He will never let you fall. He will never forget you. He will never forsake you. Why? Because he forsake his son instead. Isn't that good news? Isn't that good news to know that God will continue to provide for us even when we forget to ask him to? So we can trust. 
We can lean in God's goodness and his provision for us. And we can look forward to what it is he wants us to do. And what is that? We have a replacement behavior in our text. Don't worry, but instead, seek first the kingdom of God and all his righteousness and all these things will be provided for you. So don't, it's not like uh, seek first his kingdom and then they'll be provided. They're going to be provided. We've already proven that from our text. They're going to be provided, so don't worry about them. Don't worry, be happy, as the song says. So in our not worrying, which comes first logically, we, we stop worrying, we don't worry because it doesn't do us any good. But instead, we seek first his kingdom. What does that look like, to seek God's kingdom? Well, I, I would argue, perhaps, it's another word that starts with W-O-R. So, don't worry, because worrying is not a function of our provision. Don't work, not, no, don't work. Work isn't a function of God's provision. Our worth is a function of God's provision, and God, so God doesn't want our worry. He really doesn't want our work. He wants our worth and our worship. That is how we seek first the kingdom of God. We lift his name up because that's what the kingdom of God is all about. It is a kingdom that carries the name of Jesus Christ, the lamb who was slain before the foundation of the earth, the son of God, the king of kings, the Lord of lords, the wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace, Emmanuel, God with us, the son of the father, the first only begotten, full of grace and truth. Jesus is the name that is born by this kingdom. And if we lift up the name of Jesus, we are seeking the kingdom of God. If we lift up the name of Jesus in our worship together, we are seeking the kingdom of God. If we lift up the name of Jesus in our parenting, by parenting through the name of Christ, showing our love and God's love for our children, we are seeking the kingdom of God. When we go out into the world and we share the good news of Jesus with them, God is glorified in that and we are seeking the kingdom of God. When God tells us to love our neighbor as ourselves, and we do that, we are seeking God's kingdom because God's kingdom is a place where people love their neighbor more than themselves. When we love the Lord with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, we are seeking the kingdom of God because that is the kind of kingdom God is building. And when we do that stuff, we're, the, the not worrying is meant to free us to do those things that God has asked us to do. We're no longer, we're no longer bound and kept from reading God's word because we, when that thing comes to mind, we just say, forget it. God will worry about it. Tomorrow's got enough worries in and of itself. I'll, I'll, let, I'll let future, let's let tomorrow Mark handle that problem. Not today Mark. That's not today Mark's problem. That's tomorrow Mark's problem, right? So tomorrow has enough worries about itself. Seek first the kingdom of God. Our worry is aside. We can actually do it. God gives us his spirit. We can actually seek first his kingdom and all these things will be added to us. And sometimes in that mode, things aren't added. This is not a promise that God is going to magically send a check in your mailbox, although maybe he will. He's been known to do that from time to time. But when it doesn't happen, does that mean that God isn't faithful? No. It means that God is so good, and I think Pastor Sean mentioned this quote last week from Tim, Tim Keller. God will give us what we would have asked for if we knew all that God knows. So if you don't get the thing that you prayed for, that you thought you needed, 
and you survive a day without it, you realize maybe that thing wasn't what I thought I needed. Maybe it wasn't what I actually needed. And then you find out what you actually need. And God gives you that thing. It doesn't mean that God's going to prolong your life another day, because guess what? Everybody in this room is going to die. But it does mean that every day we live can be lived as a day with no worry because the good, good father who sent his son to die for us is the same father who continually provides what we need until the day he brings us home, which is the thing that we need more than anything else. We need to be home with Jesus. So he'll either provide for us until that day or he'll provide for us until the day he comes again, that day we wait for when Christ returns and judges the living and the dead, but gives eternal life to all of his people once and for all, where there is no more tears, no more shame, no more crying, only the name of Jesus lifted up for eternity. Won't that be a good day? So, don't worry. God's provision is not a function of our worry. It doesn't do us any good. Don't think then that if you stop worrying, you should just work harder because that's not going to do you any good either. You might get stuff, but ultimately, God's provision comes from God. And lastly, God's provision is a function of our worth, which never changes. It's not based on your performance. It's not based on how attractive you are or how talented you are. Thank God for that. It is based wholly on what God's worth he has placed on you, which will never change no matter how unfaithful we've been. Isn't that good news? Let's pray. Father, thank you for the good news of your provision for us in Christ. Lord, there are some in this room, Father, who have never trusted fully in Christ. They're still today worried that they're not even saved. So, Father, I pray that you would remind them today that, in fact, if they would turn from their sins and trust in you for salvation, they would be saved right now. And they would never have to worry about anything again. Lord, help us who do know you, Father, to trust in you more fully. Help us not to worry about whether or not you'll provide for us because you've already proven you will. Thank you for your faithfulness. I pray that you would help us to be more faithful. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Hebron Baptist Church. We pray as you have listened the Holy Spirit has worked in your heart that you may be faithfully follow Him. Most importantly, we hope that you've been drawn into a relationship with God. At Hebron, we believe that the gospel is the central message of the Bible. The gospel is that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, who was born of the Virgin Mary, lived a sinless life, and died for our sins. But He was raised from the dead and ascended to the right hand of God. The most appropriate response to hearing this good news is turning from sin and turning to Christ. Don't stay far from God. Instead, repent and believe in Christ and be brought into an intimate relationship with Him. If you would like more information about this life-changing decision, please contact us through our website at hebronbaptist.org or even better, come see us on a Sunday morning. May God bless you as you follow Him.